I stand here today believing that God is going to do something great among us and that somebody's life is going to be completely transformed today. Who knows, it could be you. Today we're in Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and then we're going to read uh, through chapter 3, verse 6. We're actually looking at two controversies today, both of them surrounding the keeping of the Sabbath. Would you stand with me as we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible, practical, applicable, life-changing word? Verse 23, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful? On the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when they were in need and hungry? How he entered the house of God in the presence of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Remember, this whole section is dealing with the authority of Jesus. He says the Son of Man is Lord even over uh, the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Their motives are clearly evident and fully disclosed. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us, and he said to them, meaning the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for life transformation among us. We pray, Lord, for those who feel unworthy, who feel the weight of their own sin, who feel they're backed against a wall and know they cannot rewrite history. We pray, Lord, for your life-giving gospel to flow freely in this place and for the 
miracle of transformation to take place. And Father, for those who have long known the gospel and have experienced and have tasted of it and have benefited from it that have started keeping score, They've gotten confused about whose righteousness is in their life. They've started to think they've had something to do with it. Father, I pray for us that we may experience the transforming power of the gospel afresh and anew so that we will not be destructive in the way we live out our faith. All of us, Lord, stand in need of your touch today, and we will not leave without it, Lord. We will not leave without it. So we pray, Lord, for the movement of your Spirit among us to do what you will in your church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the first three of five controversies that Mark puts at the beginning of his gospel. Taken as a whole, they establish that Jesus has authority, that he is God's choice for king, that he is the Messiah, which is the theme of the first half of Mark's gospel from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 21. And then after establishing his authority, Mark shows Jesus as the Messiah who is the suffering servant. What a turn. Because after establishing his authority, you, you assume that he's going to come in with an iron fist. Instead, he comes in with pierced hands. And he suffers and he bleeds and he dies for our redemption, for our salvation. The first story and the final story of this set of five controversies have some things in common. You'll notice that in the first story, we learn that Jesus had the authority to forgive sin, which is something that only God can do. The final story shows that he has authority over the Sabbath, which was one of the most distinctive elements of the Jewish faith. He had authority to forgive sin. He had authority over the Sabbath. Another thing that these stories have in common is that unlike the three in the middle, Jesus addresses his critics directly with ethical questions. The first time he asked, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. In today's text, he asked this question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Now that first question relates directly to what they were thinking, what Jesus was observing in them. It it relates directly to their activity over the question of whether or not Jesus was going to heal the man. The second half had nothing to do with that. 
The man did not have a debilitating disease, as we'll see in a moment. He had a withered hand. It was an inconvenience. But he wasn't going to die of it. But notice the second half of the question that Jesus asked, or to save life or to kill. These questions were direct. Now, our culture, the Western culture, is a direct culture. Their culture was not. Their culture was very indirect. It would have more in common with those among us with an Asian descent and their current culture than it would with those from a Western uh, 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 mindset and culture. Theirs was far more indirect. And so for Jesus, it, it's like calling him out. And he asked these questions directly of them, and it was in their face. In the middle, in the stories in the middle, we have Jesus responding to his critics' questions. See, on the ones on the outside, Jesus is asking the question. In the middle, Jesus is responding. He's explaining why he associates with sinful people. He explains why he's not trying to reform their religion. He's not come as a reformer. He's come as a disruptor. And that is the central thought, what you find in the middle. Not only is it in the third story, in the middle of the sequence of five stories, but then Jesus tells two parables, both of them relating to the third story the parable of the sown cloth and the parable of the new wine in the old wineskins. And in both of those, he is making a point that they should not miss, that he has come, he has come to be a disruptor. He has come to live out God's original intent for how we practice faith. He's not just working around the edges and reforming their practice of Judaism. He was going back to the original intent. He was going back to the beginning. And in fact, he wasn't just coming to talk about it. He was coming to fulfill it. You got to be here on Good Friday. You got to be here on Easter Sunday. Because it's in those messages that this comes to full, the volcano erupts with hope and with peace. The gospel flows freely in the backdrop. That's where we begin to see what Jesus has come to do. The Pharisees didn't get it. They were still quibbling about their little rules. They were still keeping a scorecard about how Jewish Jesus was and how much he was following their practice. And Jesus makes it clear, you don't pour new wine in old wineskin. You don't put a new cloth on an old garment. One is going to shrink, the other is going to expand. He uses back-to-back -back illustrations to say there are no exceptions. Believe me. I've come to upset things, or more precisely, I've come to make things right, to set them right. And we have learned that we must celebrate God's grace, the grace that he has flowed to us and the grace that is flowing through us to others. We must celebrate that grace while we're on mission 
We're on mission with him to take the message of the gospel to people in need of it. And so we meet the needs of people. We spend time with people. We don't try to get people to follow our religious observance. Instead, we live out our faith among them. Well, today, we're examining these two controversy stories between Jesus and the Sabbath, which is one of the distinguishing marks of Old Testament Judaism. The observance of the Sabbath, you can trace it all the way back to the creation narrative. God created the world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. Now, do you remember when he created man? Which of those six days did he create man? Do you remember? The sixth day, and so the first full day of man's existed, he rested with God. The Sabbath is not rest so we can work, or it's not working so much and then we have to rest. The Sabbath is rest so that we can work. We work, we serve, we devote, we practice our faith out of rest. It all begins with grace. God's first day that he had man created, the first day of man, was a restful day in the goodness of God. So different from modern, I've got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps culture that thinks I'm going to work as hard as I can and then when I've worked myself into exhaustion, then I'll rest. That is not biblical rest. Biblical rest comes first. Biblical rest happens before you have completely provided for your family. Biblical rest happens before the shelter is built. Do you see? Biblical rest happens at the very beginning. And so what the Jews were upset with about the Sabbath was all kitty wampus. They had turned the Sabbath observance into a religious work and missed that the rest that God was providing is foundational to life. We do not scurry like, uh, like busy ants, gathering our provision, and then when we see it's short, we say to God, oh, I'm short this month, Lord. Will you provide? That's not the way we approach life, work, finances, anything else. Instead, we, we acknowledge God our provider in everything. If you have a clear conscience, it's because God gave it to you. If you have peace, it's because God has given it to you. If you have a sense of well-being, that's come from God. And it is not that we work and then ask God to give us the rest. It's that we rest and depend on God to empower us for the provisions to come both from our hands and from his hands simultaneously. So the Sabbath 
was a cornerstone doctrine. It was a cornerstone doctrine that had kind of gone awry over time as they had made it into a religious practice instead of a great gift from God. And so uh, not only uh, were there practical implications uh, that everybody needs rest, but there are these deep spiritual uh, inferences that when we rest, we are depending on God. When we rest, we are dependent on God. And so the people of God would gather for worship. It was a holy day. It was a day that was dripping with devotion and symbolic of the people's trust in God. These were people that were day laborers and they took a day off in acknowledgement of God's great provisions. Now the two things that defines uh, Judaism more than any other were circumcision, agreed, and the Sabbath day. Uh, one was the mark of God's covenant with Abraham, and then the circumcision was, and then the second one was the practice of the Sabbath day. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Sabbath day had expanded and codified, resulting in 39 different categories of work that was prohibited on the Sabbath, and those 39 prohibitions were based upon three verses of Scripture. Exodus 35, 1-3. They took something that was beautiful and life-giving and made it draining and condemning. 39 different prohibitions. In our text today, Jesus' disciples and Jesus broke two of them. I want to underscore that the accusations that the Pharisees had against Jesus had nothing to do with what the Bible taught. It had everything to do with what they added that was extra to the Bible. Now, in our text, the Pharisees confronted Jesus because the disciples broke one of their rules. They'd picked some grain. Now, under Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it was permissible under the law. It said, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads of grain with your hand, but do not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. In other words, if you're hungry, Grab something to eat. Now, don't come with your harvesting tools and harvest it and sell it. But if you're hungry, you know, it's my neighbor has said to me, if you can reach it, you can have any fruit. You know, it's, 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 it's fine. They have a persimmon tree that the squirrels got to before I did the other day that, that uh, worried me a bit. It's the same kind of rule. If you can reach it, you can have it. No problem. We're neighbors. Enjoy. So you're walking through a field, you're hungry, grab a little handful of grain. Eat the grain. We wouldn't want you to be hungry. That was in Deuteronomy 23. However, in the Mishnah, Shabbat 10, there is a prohibition against picking any type of food from a plant on the Sabbath. 
wasn't in the scripture, but it was in their 39 rules governing the practice of three verses of scripture. You can't pick from any plant on the Sabbath. That was their rule. And they noticed that Jesus' disciples had grabbed some grain. I need to underscore again, because I want to be crystal clear, they were not violating Scripture. This wasn't even a judgment call. What they did was permitted, it was fine. However, from the constricted, the constricting rules of the Pharisees, it was in violation. And I want you to think about what the violation was. The Deuteronomy clarification was there to simply say, if you're hungry, eat. Uh, people were day laborers. They, they didn't have provisions. They didn't have credit cards. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have cupboards. They had needs. And it was just socially acceptable. Of course, take some grain. Now Jesus' response back to the Pharisees went from zero to 120 like that. Because he went all the way to David taking bread that belonged only to the priest and sharing it with others. And there was a biblical prohibition against doing that. But Jesus said, even that's okay. He was hungry. Do you not know? Do you not know? You're tripping over your little piddling rules. Can't you interpret scripture? Now, what are the implications of this? David was in dire, uh, a dire situation. He was not going to make it without sustenance. He was famished. And Jesus is setting this up as a moral equivalence. His disciples were hungry. Now later in the Gospel of Mark, we find the disciples arguing because they had forgotten to get bread. And they were concerned about that. And, you know, Jesus, he was kind of upset with them because don't you remember the fish and the loaves? And how, and, and in fact, a couple of times he performed those kind of miracles. The scripture also says that the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you remember when Jesus called the disciples that they left their profession? They were hungry. I want to rewind back to last week's message when we were looking at fasting. And the question about why the disciples don't fast. You know, fasting is really a decision that a wealthy person makes. Hungry people don't decide to fast. Food insecure people. Perhaps there have been a time in your life, perhaps it's current, it's today where you don't know where your next meal is coming. We have some of that in our own history, don't we, sweetheart? Some food insecurity. 
where the Lord provided in miraculous ways. And where, frankly, we did without. Perhaps some of you know that story of your own, or like I said, are experiencing it today. How dare those, those Pharisees? How dare they? take their made-up rules and hurt people with them. Okay, I need us all to take a deep breath. Because it's possible that we could do the same thing today. It's possible. Oh, we don't have oral tradition, but we do have a Christian subculture. And it is possible for well-meaning, good-intentioned people to do damage with their faith and not just good. I don't want to be that guy. Do you? You see, the minute we think about spiritual scorecards, we are in danger of being that guy. All of us all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, everyone in the room. And I remember when I first realized that my sin of thinking I was better than someone else was worse than that person I was looking down on. Because I've drunk deeply of grace and I wonder if that's why Jesus is so clear that if we're going to experience forgiveness, we're going to do it in proportion to our ability to forgive others. There cannot be a backflow preventer with grace. It's got to it's gotta go in both directions. And yet the Pharisees would look at those hungry people and want to talk about one of their rules. These disciples had walked away from their jobs. Jesus made it clear in his statement in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man, not man for the Sabbath. Pharisees had nothing to say. Can somebody say amen? The Pharisees had nothing to say. Unfortunately, they did not walk away. Instead, they wanted to know if, they, if Jesus was going to break Mishnah Shabbat 14, one of their 39 rules, which was a prohibition against intentional healing. 
Jesus did not disappoint. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus did not disappoint. There was a man in the synagogue where Jesus went on the Sabbath that had a shriveled hand. Now having a shriveled hand was certainly an inconvenience. It kept him from being able to go into the temple and to be able to worship uh, with the other men of faith. But it wasn't a life-threatening situation. In other words, it did not demand Jesus' immediate intervention. Like, uh, you know, a person who was choking, who had swallowed something wrong. Which one among us would not get up at the restaurant and do the Heimlich on a complete stranger without even thinking? Of course we would. Of course we would. This wasn't that. This was a man who had an inconvenience. Jesus noticed the man with the shriveled hand. I want us just to pause and to think about the God that notices. I know you've come in with private pain. Pastor Charlie may know about it as your confidant, as your pastor. Maybe some of the prayer team knows about it because we've prayed with you. But your pain is private. It's not general knowledge. No, it's not private. He knows. The Lord knows your pain. He notices. They say that when people come to church, they want anonymity, and I get that. I don't want attention drawn to me either. But I don't want anonymity when it comes to God knowing my pain, do you? He knows, and he cares. And the things that we don't want to talk about because we're ashamed, he shed his blood for that on Calvary. He's paid the price for that sin. It's been redeemed. He's bought it back. It does not belong to you anymore. It's His. He is the rightful owner. And He knows. And He cares. Jesus noticed the man with the shriveled hand. And he asked him to stand up in the assembly. I'm sure that's not what the man wanted. I'm sure he didn't want attention called to himself. The man stood. Every eye was on him. Every eye was on the one part of his body that he didn't want people to notice. There was nothing he wanted more than just feel like everybody else. Their eyes were on his shriveled hand. Jesus asked him some questions or asked questions of the Pharisees. 
Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Your 39 rules, fellas. You got any about doing good stuff on the Sabbath? Anything? And then he asked, to save life or to kill? The man in front of him was not ha did not have a life-threatening condition. What is this about, to save life or kill? The first makes sense. It would be doing good to help this person with the deformity. It would be good if for no other reason, make it easier for him to earn a living. He'd be able to go into temple worship with the other men. He would be like other people. He wouldn't always feel different. He wouldn't always have to keep his hand, probably not a pocket, but in his robe. It would be good. But what did it have to do with life and death? You've heard the expression, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. You could argue just from that truism that Jesus needed to do something even if it wasn't life-threatening. In fact, if he could do something and chose not to do something because of this rule, I would make an argument that that would be evil. It would be evil not to help. Certainly most in the room would agree that it would be good for him to do that healing. But what about that second question? To save life or to kill? As he has on other times, Jesus is looking past the obvious to their hearts. And he knows what's coming next. See, this question had nothing to do with the man with the shriveled hand. It had to do with the men with the shriveled hearts. Whose rule book had become more important to them than life itself. Jesus turned his attention back to the man with the shriveled hand. Remember, he had asked him to stand. He had asked him to stand, and every eye is on his shriveled hand. And while he is standing, he's speaking to these religious leaders. Now Jesus' attention is focused on this man. And he asks him. He asks him to, to stick out his hand. right at the point of his greatest insecurity. Stick it out so that everyone can see it. And when he did, it was not a shriveled hand they looked at. Jesus healed him. He left that day without a shriveled hand. The men with the shriveled hearts they didn't fare so well. Mark chapter 3 verse 6 says, Immediately, 
The Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him. How they might, what's the word? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? The men with the shriveled heart said, it is lawful to kill. Their mind was made up. They needed no more evidence. They chose death. And now, with strange bedfellows, the Herodians, we'll talk more about that later in the series, they conspired with the Herodians to kill Jesus. This new wine was bursting through the old wine skin. It could not hold him. Remember that. It could not hold him. Uh, you'll need that thought on Easter Sunday. It could not hold him. Mark only mentions the Sabbath day a few more times in his gospel. One time because he needed to explain why, why Jesus was in the synagogue. It's an editorial comment. It's because it was on the Sabbath day. And another time, they needed to explain why they couldn't anoint his body for burial. The Sabbath day. You see, his followers were keeping the Sabbath. They said, this can wait. And they put his unanointed body in a borrowed tomb. And Jesus kept the Sabbath. He rested. And then the next morning. Then the next morning he rose from that grave. Having defeated death. Having completed the cycle of life, resurrected, the dead was living and offering new life to everyone that would believe. And because of what Christ has done, we rest in Him. We know that He's won the victory. It's not our keeping of the rules that wins the victory. It's what Christ has done that has won the victory. And because of that, we will not be silenced. We will declare this news to everyone that will listen. That they do not have to go through life with their burdens. The burdens that have been brought on by their sins and the burdens that have been brought on by the counting of other people's sins. They do not have to go through life with either of those burdens, for Christ has won the victory.